If you have your copy of Scripture, go to Acts chapter 6. Uh, with, with the other hand, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and I love what Paul said about new beginnings. It kind of gave me flashbacks of my schooling. Uh, man, I was always glad when the semester was over uh, because I could start fresh in January. Amen? Uh, in fact, I, I thought of a time in, in college when I was, I was in Amarillo, Texas, and there was a community, went to a community college while I began my, I started ministry there, and I, I've never had really been a great student. It's kind of average and never really enjoyed school that much. Uh, I think I'd go back now and be a much better, like we probably all would if we really enjoyed learning. But I remember there's this one class, that I don't even remember what it was, but I remember about mid-semester, just quit going to class. <clears throat> and I missed the deadline in college where you could, you know, where you, you could get out, withdraw from it and still get a passing grade or whatever. And for whatever reason, they didn't give me an incomplete. The teacher gave me a D, which I didn't deserve. But it's still in my transcript, and it counted as a class, so yay. Uh, but anyway, uh, don't do that. Don't do that. But anyway, it's about the, the guy. <laughs> so I was always grateful for a new start, and that's kind of what we're going to talk a little about uh, this morning. Uh, we're picking up a study in Acts that, that we actually began at the end of the summer. Uh, we, if, if you're new with us, we... Uh, really, really, over the last five or six years, we've just simply just started picking books of the Bible and going verse by verse through that. And uh, it has been so incredibly uh, insightful for me and hopefully for you. Uh, but it's incredible how God's Word is applicable no matter where, what time of the year it is or whatever, or whatever you're going through. Uh, th- there's always something to pull out of this. And so we've, uh, the book of Acts is uh, a story of the, the early church in, in its infancy. Uh, you may remember at the end of Mark, uh, in Matthew, uh, that, that Jesus appeared. This is after uh, the resurrection, and he appeared to the disciples. Uh, it, we know it as the Great Commission, and he, he, he appeared to them. And he said, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And, and you can be sure of this. I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so uh, I, I'm sure after they heard that, they probably thought what we would think in that after we were told to do that is, how in the Sam Hill is that going to happen? <laughs> how am I going to be able to do that? And so we see in Acts, Acts chapter 1, it's the next step of that. Uh, Jesus appears again to them. Uh, and this, again, this is after the, the resurrection And he tells them, I want you to stay in Jerusalem until the power of the Holy Spirit comes. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be your teacher. He will enable you. He will give you everything you need to fulfill the calling to go and to be and and, and, and to, to build disciples. And so on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. And, and since that time, uh, over the first few months after the day of Pentecost, we've seen uh, the early church begin to explode in numerical uh, growth. Some scholars have referred to this time as, as the church being a combustible fellowship, a spreading flame. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, it, it hasn't come without some uh, challenges along the way. And we've seen the apostles 
uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit face those challenges. And when they faced the public scorn of the crowd, uh, that they stood with sound preaching, uh, with intimidation, they prayed prayers of boldness. And when hypocrisy began to creep into the church, uh, they met it with uncompromising integrity. But at the end of chapter 5, we, we saw that for the first time, the apostles were beginning uh, to have physical persecution come against them, specifically because they just wouldn't shut up. They just wouldn't stop talking uh, about this Jesus. And so they were arrested, they brought in, and, and they were beaten and told never to do it again. And we, in chapter 5 ends with them uh, rejoicing in the fact. They just been, had the dog beat out of them, and they're rejoicing in the fact that, that they were worthy to suffer the way Jesus suffered. And they immediately go back to sharing the good news, the thing that got them arrested in the first place. And so we've seen them face all these challenges, and then as we go into chapter 6, uh, the, the, we, we see a challenge that may be, uh, may be one that they may not be able to conquer. They're about to face one of the greatest challenges of all, which is success. And I know that sounds a bit strange, but success is a real challenge. I mean, we're, we're seeing it with the Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, they, 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 success, they, they, success has a way of making you want to just kind of kick back and enjoy the fruit of your labor, but not really being focused on what got you there. We also see that. Not only with the Kansas City Chiefs, but that's true in our faith as well. I mean, when you, you can think back on that time in your life, if you live long enough, you can look back over your spiritual life and you can see that the times when you really began to grow, the times when, when Jesus really began to mean more than just a word on the page, when he became your, your all in all, it was in the, the difficult times of life. It wasn't in success. We, we enjoy the mountaintops, right? But that's not where we grow. But it was in the valley when it feels like the rug is pulled out from under you and you were desperate for God to show up and to do something. Success can sometimes cause us to refocus on secondary opportunities that, that actually take us away from what those things that are most important. And it's often in those times that we begin to lose our way or we put our focus on secondary things. In the military, they have a term for this. It's called military creep. Military creep or mission creep. And mission creep is when the, 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 they would start out on a mission, uh, but other skirmishes or needs would arise. And so they, they took their eyes off the main mission and they had to go put out fires all around them. And that, that's where the apostles are as we move into chapter 6. They're dealing with mission creep, where the most important thing that they were called to was unintentionally being pushed aside. For our purposes, mission creep is when secondary things become more important than the primary things. And those secondary things can be both good things and they can be not so good things. There's a lot of things that can uh, kind of fall into that category, can kind of cause mission creep uh, from hardships and problems uh, that, that consume our minds with worry and fret. That's where some of us are this morning. Some of us, you know, we're, we're dealing with, 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 a, with an aging father and, and father-in-law who, unless God carries, I mean, unless God takes him away, is, is not in a very good place right now. We're saying, God, do something. 
And it's, it's consuming our thoughts. It's consuming. And I know many of you have walked through that or you've, you've been through that. But it's not just the hardships and problems. Sometimes uh, it's those times of abundance and success where, where, where we just kind of kick back and we become less focused. Have you noticed that when you're walking through good times, you don't pray as often? <laughs> you're not as needy. Mission creep is when your focus is no longer on the primary, primary thing, and that's where the early church is. In, in chapter 6, I invite you to read there with me. Verse 1 says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, or another way of saying that, when, when the church was experiencing a major success, notice what happens, that there were rumblings of discontent. Before we go further, I want to kind of uh, talk about what a disciple is, because I think we can kind of sometimes lose, uh, it loses its meaning, and, and, and Tony Evans is where I got this from, it's in your handout, it's on the screen, uh, definition of a disciple is a disciple is a believer in Christ who takes part in the spiritual development process of progressively learning to live all of life in submission to the Lordship of Christ, that, that's a long definition, let's read it again. A disciple is a believer in Christ who takes part, not just an observer, they take part in the spiritual development process of progressively or increasingly learning to live all of life in submission to the Lordship of Christ. So, so the 2024 question, 2024 question for us this morning is, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Uh, under that definition. Not, not just someone who identifies as a Christian, but, but are you a believer in Christ who is actively taking uh, part in the spiritual development process where you're learning to live all of your life under the lordship of Christ? It's not just a one segment of our a segment of our life where this is my Christian life and this is my fleshly life. You understand that every bit of your life, both your spiritual and your flesh, should be under the lordship of Christ. You're living that way. You understand that nothing happens in my life that he doesn't put in my path and that he has a purpose in everything, and so I am to be totally committed to him. I'm totally uh, to be growing and learning to live my life in a way that is under his lordship. I had a youth minister one time from Arkansas, and he said, when he came to that word Lord, he said, now, now what that means, what the word Lord means is boss. He's the boss of your life. And there's not a decision you make that you don't ask him first. And so, so 2024 question, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Mission statement of living stones, and I had Brittany put it at the bottom of, of our handout this morning, is building authentic relationship with Christ, each other, and the world. And so part of that is that, that individually we are growing as a disciple. The goal of the church is not merely uh, for people to become Christians, but it's for them to develop into fully committed disciples. And so are you a part of that? And if not, this is a good time to start. There's many ways we can do that. There's discipleship groups that are forming right now, and there'll be other opportunities for you to do that. So Luke tells us in the days of incredible growth and success that there arose a problem. 
And as you continue to read in verse 1, he identifies the prophet, says, the Greek-speaking believers, or your copy of Scripture might say the Hellenistic Jews complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers or the Hebraic Jews, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. <clears throat> that doesn't sound that big, but let me explain what they did. Hebraic Jews lived in and around Jerusalem. They considered themselves to be uh, the true, pure Jews. That was one group. The other group was the Hellenistic or Grecian groups. These were the Greek-speaking uh, Jews that lived in the other parts of the empire. And they were Jews, but, but they had adopted some of the Greek ways of life. And so racially, they are the same but, but they are very different culturally. Right now, there, the last several years, there's been a major influx of people moving from California into Texas. You're talking about a culture shift. I'm not going to say which one's weird, but you can fill that out. Micah. The, the Jewish culture had a system. They had a system, a way of caring for the needy, a way of caring for the widows and the orphans. Oh, on Fridays, they would go and they would collect uh, food and money from the market and from other private houses, and they would gather it all together. And then later that afternoon, they'd go to the synagogue and they would distribute uh, the, the resources, this food and money, uh, to the needy, specifically the widows and the, the orphans. Here's a problem. When the church began to grow, when, when they would convert, when there were orphans and widows that became Christians, when they joined the early church, as soon as they did that, they were cut off from receiving the resources that were passed out in the synagogues. And so the early church uh, took over the care of the Christian widows and orphans, and apparently uh, the Greek-speaking widows were not being treated as well as the Hebrew-speaking widows. And this caused a rumble in the church, which, just a side note, shows us from the very beginning that there's no such thing as a perfect church. Why? Because there's people in the church, people like you and me. And as long as there are people in the church, there will be potential for conflict and disagreement. There are no perfect churches just like there are no perfect families. And some of us have had a reminder about how imperfect our family was during the holidays, right? Every family has some oddballs. Every family has that person that's a little bit difficult to deal with. And just like that, in every family, in every church, we all go through difficult times. But we're still family, and we're still called to love one another. Amen? And when problems arise, healthy families and healthy churches deal with the conflict head on. Because if we don't, what happens is there's no longer unity in that family. There's no longer unity in that church. And Scripture mandates that we do whatever it takes to protect the unity in a body of believers. And that that's transfers in our families and everything. We, we protect the unity. Now, here's the deal. You don't protect the unity by sweeping things under the rug, right? You deal with it head on, and that's uncomfortable. I've, I've told you before, I was a, a major peacemaker when I met my wife. And, and, and since then, 
my, my idea, I, let me back that up. I had, a, I had an understanding of, peace, of being a peacemaker differently before I married my wife. Uh, because back then, I, I thought that being a peacemaker, uh, which Jesus had blessed are the peacemakers, uh, that, that, that being a peacemaker was just that I avoided conflict. But what Jana has taught me, and she's helped, and we, we were different. And how, many, how many of y'all are different than your spouse? Yeah. Anybody have sparks at your house? But, but what she taught me, sometimes being a peacemaker means you got to kick butt. you got to hit conflict right on the head, right? And that's uncomfortable, but the, the, the alternative of that is just, you're talking about dysfunction, it's just going to get worse. And, and so... We, 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 that's why we are mandated in Scripture to, to, to hit conflict head, head in the face, that, that we protect the unity at all costs. It doesn't mean we sweep it under the rug. We, we deal with it. And so it's just a reminder, just something that I thought of as going through this. So I can just imagine the Greek-speaking Jews bringing this to the, attendance of the, of the, to the attention of the disciples. And by their response, I'm pretty certain that the early church leaders were being accused of deliberately discriminating against their widows. And these accusations led to what we see in verse 2 that they called an all-church meeting. Verse 2 says this, so the 12 called a meeting of all believers and they said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. Now watch this. It wasn't that the disciples thought that, that waiting on tables or caring for the orphans was beneath them or that it wasn't a worthy endeavor. It was simply that, that as leaders that they knew and understand what their main focus should be. That their main role and, and, and job in the household of faith required them to spend a great deal of time in study and prayer. And if that didn't happen, if they didn't do that, if they didn't keep that focus, then mission creep would happen. Again, mission creep is when secondary things become more important or take us away from the primary thing. And so the disciples fully understood this and that this was a serious problem. They shared it with the rest of the church. Notice verse 3. And so, brothers, uh, they said, so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom and give them this responsibility. As we're thinking about deacons, look for men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. We'll give them this responsibility. Verse 4, then, the, then we apostles can spend our time with prayer and teaching the word. Verse 5, notice there's unity. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Procurus, the canner, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas of Antioch, who was an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. And I just want to pause right there, and, and I didn't realize this. None of those names sound that different to me, or some do, but, but all seven of these men had Greek names. And that was on purpose. Because remember where, where the complaint was coming from. The complaint was coming from the Greek-speaking Jews. And so what, what they did, this is so wise, they put the Grecian Jews in charge uh, of, uh, of this program, of caring for the Greek-speaking widows. And verse 6 says, these seven men 
uh, were, were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And they were commissioned and given authority to do the work. Now, look at the results of this. Verse 7 says, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. And then notice that last part. And many of the Jewish priests were converted as well. Many of the Jewish priests were converted as well. And we're going to pick up the story here uh, next week in the study of Acts. But for the rest of our time, uh, I, I want to talk about mission creep. And I want to talk about how to avoid it because it's a very real problem uh, that, that happens, can happen to all of us uh, because sometimes we lose sight of what God wants to do in and through our lives. And that, that's an easy thing to do because uh, life is hard and the battle is fierce. And, and often our biggest problem in following Jesus uh, is, is that we try to do it, we try to do life in our own strength instead of his, instead of waiting on the power of the Holy Spirit. And how many, how many of you know that never works? I mean, some of us have got loads of baggage or loads of scars or whatever where we didn't where we try to do things in our own flesh some of those got some stories to tell right <clears throat> the good news is that, that that's not the way god intended us to live he came to give us a life and more abundantly in second peter verse three peter says that that by his divine power that that god has given us everything say everything God has given us everything we need to live a godly life. In other words, the, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, we sang about that the same power that was given to the apostles uh, to, to carry out what God called them to do is available to you and me. And it's that power that, that, that brings about change. It's that power that enables us to follow the vision and the mission of what God has called us to do. But if we ignore that leading, if, if we neglect spending time in the Word, if we neglect gathering together with God's people, if life happens and we get tired and weary and, and we stop growing spiritual, we stop pressing in to know Jesus, then mission creep can set in and we will start living for ourselves and, and, and we'll know this by the way we will start giving the best energy and the best resources of our life to lesser things. And sometimes we need a wake-up call. Sometimes we need a reminder. And I can't think of a better time than the first Sunday of a brand new year. And so I want us to look at something uh, that we've talked about before, if you've been a part of Living Stones, it's actually a prayer that, that the apostle prayed in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Paul is praying for a church that he had planted in Ephesus. And, and his prayer gives us an incredible outline of what and how we need to pray for ourselves, for our church, and for the people in our lives that we love. He begins in verse 17. He says, I, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Watch this. So that you may know him better. That's the first prayer directive. It's the thing that we can pray for ourselves and for our church and the people we love. Is that, God, I pray, number one, that they would know God in a personal, 
intimate way. God, that I would know you in 2024 in a more personal, intimate way. That the word in the original language for know is the word gnosko. And it actually is the same word in other parts of Scripture where, where it says that Adam knew his wife. It's the same word. Uh, it's, it's an intimate term. It, it's more than just having a mental knowledge of God. It's, it's more than just believing there's a God. It, it's an it's intimate term where you know God in an intimate way. That you're in relationship with the living God. He continues in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Now, that sounds a little bit weird, but Paul's making a point that in addition to the eyes on our head, that our heart has the same capacity to see as well, meaning that we view and process life with both sets of eyes. Specifically, with the eyes of our heart, we process everything, all of the past pain and problems, all of our failures. But it's also with our heart that, that we process our successes and our blessings as well. Like we said earlier, both good days and bad days can cloud our vision. And that those things can keep us living in bondage or they can prevent us from living a life that's focused. And so Paul says, I pray uh, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that they would be opened so that you can begin to see clearly the second prayer directive uh, another way of saying that is that you would find freedom from your past, that you would find healing from your pain and your, your, your failures, but you also get freed up from those days of success when you just went off on your own instead of depending on God. Get over, your, get over yourself. But you find freedom from your past, both good and bad. And you stop relying on your success. Verse 18 continues, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. And that may sound weird to you, but part of the journey, part of the spiritual journey is understanding that God has called every one of us. It's not just for the paid holy man that, that leads a church. That every one of us, if you know Jesus, there's a calling on your life. We sang about it. First, he called you to no longer live in darkness, but to walk in light. Feel your calling, you have to know your calling. And part of your calling is what we've talked about already. You get to know Jesus intimately, and you find freedom from your past, which opens the door to the third prayer directive, is that you discover your meaning and purpose. You understand that God created you with a plan and purpose in mind, and that, that's huge because when you know that your life has purpose, it becomes a massive source of hope in your life. Talk about it before. There, there may come a day when, when, when God allows some of us to retire from our vocation. But here's what you never get. You never retire from being a follower of Jesus. And so I don't get it. I don't get it. When somebody can step away from their, their, their vocation and feel like there's no meaning and purpose for their life. I mean, I'm thinking, dude, all that does is open up more days for you to be who God called you to be. You got more opportunity. And so if we're living with that, 
There shouldn't be a day when we get up and we're kind of floundering around. If we understand that God created me, he created me exactly the way I am, and he's changing part of me, but he wants to use me to be an expression of who he is to the people around me. There's always something that I can do. We begin to walking around like that. I mean, you don't even walk to in, in the Home Depot without beginning to see things different. You begin to walk in hope. You begin to discover that your life matters, that it has eternal significance, and that there's so many Christians these days that are missing out on that. Uh, they're missing out on becoming who God created them to be. Somewhere along the line, along the way, there was a mission creep. And so this morning uh, may be a wake-up call for someone hearing this. You've forgotten your God-given purpose, and you've lost your confidence and hope. And Paul prays, I pray that you may know this, the hope to which God has called you, that you begin to walk in that hope, and you, you can start investing your life in something that matters. Then Paul begins talking about this thing of inheritance. Inheritance. He says, you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And part of that inheritance is a home in heaven. Unfortunately, there's so many people that that's the only inheritance they think about. You know, they... they, they Pray a prayer, walk down the aisle, present them before the church, and I got my fire insurance, not going to hell, I'm going to heaven. That's about it. That may be where some of you have stopped, but, but the inheritance is more than just a home in heaven. Man, that's going to be an incredible place one day. But, but there's a life right now that's part of that inheritance. That there, there, there's an inheritance that, 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 that right now, which is the peace, power, and joy that comes from knowing Jesus, really knowing Jesus, not just about Jesus, but knowing him. But this inheritance is not just for us, meaning that part of our inheritance are the souls of other people. That part of our inheritance are our family and our friends and the people we come in contact as followers of Jesus, that we are called to uh, be, be a dispenser of this incredible hope and love that we have discovered, that we are to live each day reaching out and caring for and gathering as many people to go along with us along the way, to know Jesus. Or to say it another way, prayer director, that, that we live to make a difference. As we're, as we're walking into 2024, God, that I may know. God, I want to know you more intimately. God, I, I, I want to live in a way it makes a difference. Verse 19, he says, I pray that you will understand the, the incredible greatness of God's power uh, for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that, that raised Jesus from the dead and, and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in heavenly realms. The fifth prayer director, prayer, fifth and last, is that we learn to rely on God's power. That we learn to rely on God's power. And that that's so important because Nothing eternal uh, will be accomplished in our own power. Now, that's not to say that your gifts and talents won't make some things better, but, but it takes the power of God to make an eternal difference. 
That's what God invites us to be a part of, to join him in the process of making eternal differences in the people around us. And I'm really confident that, that in this coming year, that, that as we both corporately as a church, that we personally as individuals begin to seek God, we get to the place where we are making ourselves available, that he will help us know specifically what our role is and how to play a part in that. That as Peter said, that God will give us everything we need to live the life he has called us to. And so Paul gives us this list of what to pray and we pursue, that we know God intimately, that we commit to discipleship, uh, that, that, that we find freedom from our past, we discover meaning and purpose, we live to make a difference, and we learn to rely on God's power. But here's the deal. None of that will happen in our lives if we're neglecting God's word. Let me say it again. All of your resolutions, all of I'm going to get better this year, will not happen if you neglect God's word. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying you can't. I mean, you can lose some weight this year. I'm talking about eternal things. I read a tweet this week. I guess it's Twitter anymore. It's something else anyway. I call it Twitter still, but uh, from Method Ministries. It's on the screen here. It says, uh, the church must shift its focus from using fleshly means to attract fleshly people who don't want Christ to feeding and shepherding God's people by his word. There's a lot of churches these days that are that are focusing on just having the not the shiny stuff and the exciting stuff and all that stuff to get people in the building. And I, I want you to know, they, they can draw a crowd. And there's some churches that are doing an incredible job of that. God can give a rip about how flashy you are. And I just want you to know that, that as we begin a new year, the Living Stones, that we're going to be more committed to this than ever. We, I, I feel like we've always kind of been that way. But more than ever, I'm, I'm confident of the fact that it's God's word that matters. And we, we do need to get better in some areas. And the only way we're going to do that is not getting squeezing more out of me and Jordan and some of you. We, we got to get more people in the process. We got to get more people really understanding that, hey, I got to, this is, you know what, this is like my home. This is like my home. Some of, this, some of you refer to this as your church family. And just like your family and home, you got responsibility. Anybody's job to take out the trash? Yeah. yeah. I, I was taught early in ministry, and I teach it to the guys that, that have come on here, that there's no job beneath you. Jordan and I was talking when, when Jordan came. Jordan, Jordan, Jordan grew up here. I mean, he was a little punk. I'm looking at this like fifth grade. But, but we talk about that. There, there's no job around this place that I've unplugged toilets, I've carried out the trash, and I've fixed vacuum cleaners. That shouldn't be my main focus. And some of you could do that with your arm tied behind your back. So I'm, I'm asking for some of you. And some of the deacons, when we get in it, but don't, don't you have to be a deacon to do this. If you say, hey, i got some time available, and I just want to make, what, what are some physical things I can do around this building? Just like your home. What are some practical ways? Things you're gifted for, things you're not gifted for. You're just, it's something you can do. 
but it would make this place better. And that's a talk for another day. But anyway, uh, the, the bottom line is this. Scripture must be the foundational. It must be foundation for our lives. And we don't get to pick and choose the parts that we agree with and the parts we don't. It's not an option. Like in your notes, I put it this way. God's Word has to be the foundation and grid by which you view life. places and because there wasn't a lot of dirt there wasn't a lot of soil for it to grow on it didn't take root and it was quickly scorched by the sun and it died some seed fell among the thorns and when the little plants tried to grow the thorns choked them out and there was no fruit then Jesus started talking about good soil That some of the seed fell on good soil, and when it did, it multiplied and grew. And those four types of soil, the story represented, gives a picture of our hearts. And, and Jesus, in verse 19, begins to unpack this, and he gives us some application. Verse 19, Jesus said that when, when anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not receive it or does not understand it, that the evil one, Satan, will come along and snatch away what was sown into their heart. Unfortunately, this happens every Sunday. As the word of God goes out, as the seed's been thrown your way, you walk out this building and you'll be quickly distracted thinking about lunch or the Chiefs game, and you'll leave today exactly nothing will happen. You'll hear the word, but it will make no difference in your heart because the soil of your heart is hard. Verse 20, he talks about the rocky ground, and he said that the seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word, and they receive it with joy, uh, but, but since they have no root, they, they it only lasts a short period of time. Mission creep begins to set in, and so when when troubles and persecution comes along, uh, they, they quickly fall away, and that, that will be true of some more of you here today. You'll hear this, and at first you'll be challenged and, and fired up, and you'll leave determined uh, to make 2024, you'll make God a priority in 2024, and you'll do it for a while, but one day something will happen. Uh, a doctor's report will come in, your car breaks down, somebody offends you, and, and, and instead of persevering, you'll just quit. That's what happens when seed falls on rocky soil. Verse 22, he says that the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word. Watch this. But the word. 
worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, making it unfruitful. This group has a lot of people in it. They're not bad people. They may be sitting right next to you. They, they really want their life to count. But they get preoccupied with life. They're busy. They're, they're trying to balance work and school and marriage and bills and babies and sports and college. And without meaning to, the worries and the pressures of life begin to choke out the word of God in them. And there's no fruit. Verse 23, Jesus says, but the seed that falls on good soil. And I mean, I believe there's so many hearts here today that are good soil. In fact, I, I believe God's been working on you for this moment. He's been preparing your heart for this moment. Jesus says that the seed that falls on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and they understand it. They obey it. And that seed multiplies. Because that, that's what happens when the word of God lands on good soil and a willing heart. There's always fruit. In fact, God blesses it and, and, and it multiplies way beyond our building ability, greater than our greatest dream or bigger than our imagination. That's what happens when the seed falls on good soil. And the, the point of the parable is clear. It is that the condition of the heart matters. the last takeaway, which is this, our willingness to be open to receive and respond to God's word will greatly determine the measure of God's power working in you. God's word must be foundational in our lives. Would you stand for prayer? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to be here long. Back to our 2024 question. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you actively taking a part in the development process where you are increasingly learning to live all of your life under the Lordship of Jesus? You know, th th this is something Jesus was very clear on. Say, come to me and give me a part of yourself, and you can you can experience the abundant life. He says, I want you to die to yourself. It's real clear. It wasn't a switcheroo. And if you are a Christian, then God should have first claim on your life. And if He doesn't, then you've got some changes to make. And I can hear it because every year I used to do resolutions and every year I knew there was changes that needed to take place and many times I would change and I'd go for a while and it'd be all right. But, but the change that I tried to accomplish in my own flesh, in my own strength, never lasted. So there's some things in some of our lives where 
the only way it's going to be different this time next year is that the power of God can be this way. So, so right now, just in the quietness of the moment, I'm just, just name that. I'm just, just you and God, don't pray it out loud. Just say, God, this is something that I need you to do. Because I've tried and I can't do it. So I surrender. success, I repent from from being held bondage to my past. Maybe for the first time you're here this morning and you've never really entered into a relationship with Jesus and I just want to invite you to do that this morning. The Bible teaches that every one of us have sinned, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. There's nothing you can do about that and that's why Jesus came and he died and his blood was shed that you may experience forgiveness for your past sin and failure. So if you say, Jesus, I pray that you would come live inside of me, that you would forgive me of my sin. I'm yours. I want to follow you. I want to enter into becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Man, if you prayed that, that's Just like school with me, man. It's a new year. <laughs> the old semester's gone. You can begin again. That's what's so incredible about the grace of God that He doesn't hold our past against us. Aren't you glad of that? We can begin again. So, Father, in those areas where we've just given up, in those areas, Father, where we just feel so defeated, Father, we surrender them to you. And we ask that your spirit would give us the strength to do what we could never do on our own. Father, may we live more determined this year to know you. To know you in the power of your break free from our past, to discover the meaning and purpose for why we were created, God, to live our lives to make a difference.
for another year. God, help us this time next year to look back and see how we've grown to know you. Father, we, we just submit ourselves to you individually and as a church and ask God, we know, we don't know what the next year holds for us, but we know that, that there is nothing greater than you, that, that you can't accomplish in and through us, Father. So, Father, we Thank you.